You're listening to audio from Citizens Church in Annapolis, Maryland. I'm Pastor Joey, and I hope what you're about to hear blesses you, increases your love and knowledge of Jesus, and answers any questions that you might have about Him. The fire you threaten burns for a time and is soon extinguished. There is a fire you know nothing about. The fire of the judgment to come and of eternal punishment, the fire reserved for the ungodly. But why do you hesitate? Do what you will. The last words of the second century Bishop Polycarp before being stabbed to death and his body burned. You may roast this goose, but a hundred years from now a swan will arise whose singing you will not be able to silence. The bohemian proto-reformer Jan Hus said to the Pope who had sentenced him to death by burning. Being tied to the stake, he prayed aloud, Lord Jesus, it is for thee that I patiently endure this cruel death. I pray thee to have mercy on my enemies. The pyre was lit, and as the flames climbed higher, he sang psalms until he died. For God's love, good people, let me have more fire, exclaimed the Anglican reformer John Hooper as the low flames merely singed his legs. More fuel was added, enough to consume him. Before his mouth turned black, before his tongue became too swollen to move, before his lips shriveled to his gums, Hooper exclaimed, Lord Jesus, have mercy on me. Lord Jesus, have mercy on me. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. With the blood and fat dripping from his fingers, the bishop beat his arm against his chest until it fell off and continued to do so until the other arm fell off. After 45 minutes in the fire, John Hooper's body bowed forward, giving up his spirit. Sufferings like these are not new for the Christian church. And many have suffered in extreme ways like this. And while these are often horrific stories, we also find them to be encouraging stories. Our brothers and sisters were faithful to the end, even under such evil treatments. The experience demonstrated the seriousness of their faith in Christ. They were tested and found to be true. This is what we saw last week as we studied Daniel chapter 3. And though they did not die, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were tested through fire because they would not practice the evil that they were told to practice. Rather, they submitted themselves to God. Their response to the fiery furnace showed that their faith was real. We find a similar kind of fiery testing in our passage in 1 Peter this morning. As our world becomes more and more intolerant of the Christian faith and its wild pursuit of rampant immorality, we will become a greater and greater threat. And that threat will be dealt with either by coercion or elimination. In order to suffer these things well, in order to be ready 
in order even to endure the things that maybe we are already experiencing, we must take to heart what the Apostle Peter has in these verses. The question that our text this morning answers is, how do we suffer well as Christians? We're going to look at three answers. First, you must know that you will suffer. We'll see that in verses 12 and 13. You must know that you will suffer. You must know the promised reality of suffering. Second, you must know what you will suffer. And we'll see that in verses 14 through 16. If you know the ways in which you are promised to suffer, you are going to be better prepared. And finally, you must entrust yourself to God. It'll be verses 17 through 19. And what else can any of us do but trust the Almighty and his purposes? And you might notice that these are all pretty basic. This isn't profound. Friends, the Christian life is not about being profound. The Christian life is about doing the basics. It's about doing them well for the glory of God and for the good of your soul. So before we jump into our passage, let's, let's come to the Lord in prayer. Father, we confess that often we are weak. Often, when we suffer, we suffer in our weakness. We pray that you would help us in our weakness and sufferings. Help us when we are pressed down with the weight of sorrow. Help us when we are perplexed and don't know what to do. Help us when we are slandered and persecuted. Help us to, to feel the glory of Christ. If you see anything in us, Lord, anything in us that is evil, that we cherish, any delight that is not your delight, any, any nest of sin in our hearts, we ask that you would give us the grace to endure the suffering that we would be purged from these things. Teach us to walk in your commandments. As we pass through the tempests of persecution and temptation, we know that we shall not drown. And we know that if we are to die, that we will see your face the sooner. If a painful end is to be our lot, then grant us the grace that our faith would not fail. Only glorify yourself in us, whether in comfort or trial, as a chosen vessel, always ready for your use. We pray these things in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. So first, this stand is the worst. It keeps sinking. First, we must know that you will suffer. You must know that you will suffer. 
Verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. Well, to suffer, well, as Christians, especially persecution, we must know that we will suffer. This seems elementary. It might seem quite obvious to you. But evidently, the Apostle Peter needed to state the matter plainly because these Christians were confused about the matter. He reminds them first of his love for them and tells them not to be surprised at their suffering, what he calls the fiery trial. It should not be something regarded as strange, but as something normal and expected for our testing. This fiery trial should certainly make us think of our passage, again, in Daniel chapter 3. Just as those men were tested by trial and fire in a literal sense, so also all Christians are tested by trial and fire in a figurative sense, although, as we read, some in quite a literal sense as well. But what is this testing and why fire? Fire burns and it destroys. But not all that is destroyed is bad. If we consider precious metals, they are mined and then placed into a blazing fire to be melted down. And in that process, the impurities are burned up and destroyed while the metal remains intact. And so this fire purifies the metal, leaving it far more precious and valuable than when it first went through the flame. The fiery trial we read here is to be understood in the same way. A furnace that is meant to purify, leaving the object more precious than it was before. And this concept doesn't just pop up here in the New Testament. It's rooted in the Old Testament. And Psalm 66 says, For you, O God, have tested us. You have tried us as silver is tried. You brought us into the net. You laid a crushing burden on our backs. You let men ride over our heads. We went through fire and through water, yet you have not brought us out, or you have brought us out to a place of abundance. And similarly, Proverbs 17, verse 3 says, The crucible is for silver and the furnace is for gold. And the Lord tests hearts. This is the way that God works sin out of his people. And this is the way that God works his character into his people. The suffering and persecutions are are God's means of purifying his children and showing the genuineness of their faith. This is why Christians suffer often greatly and often under persecution. It is God's work in you to cleanse you and prove your faith to be true. And suffering is not strange because as verse 19, if you want to look at that ahead, you can. As verse 19 shows us, it is God's will. God is sovereign over all things, including our suffering, including our persecution. You must not think that persecution and suffering happen just by chance. God has designed it to test, to purge, to cleanse. And you should be comforted by the expectation of persecution, of hatred from the world. 
It removes the, the pride and illusion of control in your life. Don't be surprised when someone is mad at you for your testimony of Christ. Don't be surprised when you are overlooked for a promotion. Don't be surprised when coworkers or neighbors are, are hostile for you for reasons you can't understand. Expect this. It humbles you. It lays you bare. It pushes you to depend entirely on God. And friends, there is nothing sweeter than knowing God. There's, there's nothing better than really, truly knowing the reliability of God. Knowing the truth that He is your rock and your foundation. That He is your shield. And we can know this intellectually. But friends, how much better is it when we experience this knowledge for ourselves, when the Lord has indeed been our lifeline, the only anchor to which we can hold? Your suffering, your persecution is meant to do this. Do not run from it, but embrace it. And that should cause us to rejoice. You see that in verse 13. He says, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. So we rejoice because we share in the sufferings of Christ. Now, to be sure, there are sufferings that we experience as Christians that are not the sufferings of Christ. And we'll address that in the next section, the next few verses. But here Peter is saying that when we suffer as Jesus suffered, we should have a deep and abiding joy. Well, how did he suffer? Jesus suffered for doing what is right. And he suffered as a sinner, though there was no sin in him. He suffered as an insurrectionist, a blasphemer, as a hater of God though he was none of those. He suffered for knowing and doing the will of God. What he was accused of is not what he was guilty of. So when you suffer as a Christian for doing things that are right, for, for being a Christian, you are sharing in the sufferings of Christ. And Jesus suffered at the hands of hostile, scornful Mocking sinners. And it is the same for us. And that is a genuine privilege. What a calling to experience the same kinds of suffering as the incarnate God, the Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth. Well, this present rejoicing, Peter says here, also has a future effect. Peter says that we rejoice now so that we may rejoice when Jesus returns. Our joy now through suffering is the means of attaining our joy then. In other words, as we remind ourselves of the preciousness of Christ throughout our lives, we will endure and we will finally meet him face to face. 
And this kind of regular pattern of rejoicing after rejoicing after rejoicing in the face of hard things has a preserving effect on us as God's people. And this is not some trite advice about the the power of positive thinking. We're not ignoring our present sufferings, nor are we attempting to merely find the, the silver linings. We embrace it. We take hold of the suffering. We look it straight in the eyes while clinging to the precious promises of our God, knowing that he has designed this very moment for his glory and for our good. This is a a radical, abnormal, supernatural way to respond to suffering that cannot be manufactured. It confounds the wisdom of the world. And this should be proof positive of the lies of the prosperity gospel. Perhaps you are here and you have heard from others, maybe a, a trusted friend, mentor, or teacher, that God intends to give you all manner of blessings that can only be received by faith. And that suffering is a sign that your faith is too small, that you need only to to sow a seed or to stop thinking negatively and start thinking positively because your positive thinking will change your reality and God will finally bless you. You suffer because you do not have enough faith. This is a lie from the pit of hell. This is not the truth. And if you have heard this and believe this to be the Christian message, I am sorry, but you have been lied to. If you listen to the teachings of people like Joel Osteen, Oral Roberts, Benny Hinn, Joyce Meyer, Creflo Dollar, Todd White, Christine Kane, Andrew Womack, Robert Morris, or even churches like Bethel, Hillsong. Hear me clearly. Turn and run. Turn and run. There is nothing for you there. They will not strengthen your faith. They will destroy it. They would have you believe damnable lies, including lies about suffering. So I would plead with you to join a church that teaches the truth of God's word, that preaches the gospel, that tells you hard things because God's word says hard things. You could choose our church. That'd be great with me. You do not suffer because you lack faith. You suffer precisely because you have faith in the Lord who uses it to sanctify you and to prepare you for glory. As Peter says here in verse 13, we rejoice because of the the paradox that suffering means exaltation. Isn't that interesting? That goes against our natural inclination as humans. We want to flee suffering. Suffering is an indication that something terribly wrong has happened. 
Or perhaps it's a sign that you have done something wrong and you're being punished. Suffering is a lowly position. But for the Christian, suffering does indeed lead to exaltation. That is the pattern of our Lord who came, who suffered, who died, who was buried, and the one who was resurrected and now sits enthroned at the right hand of God and who will come again to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Same will happen for us. When he returns, when our sufferings are completed, we will be glorified. That's what the Apostle John tells us. He says, when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Suffering and then glory. That's the way. That's the pattern. We must remind ourselves of this. Otherwise, we will lose our hope and we will become bitter. And if we become embittered toward God because of our life and the pain we are dealt, we are not preparing ourselves to rejoice at the revelation of Christ's glory. Friends, do you realize that when he returns, all troubles will melt away? Do we we grasp that? Do we really understand that? Every tear wiped Every injustice dealt with. Every sinful inclination dissolved. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, as we read for our call to worship this morning, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Well, Augustine once said, God had one son on earth without sin, but none without suffering. If you are going to suffer well as a Christian, You must always know that you are promised to suffer. You should not be surprised. God has purposed this very thing. So don't get caught off guard. Not only must you know that you will suffer, you must know what you will suffer. We'll see that starting in verse 14. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. The kind of suffering that I think Peter has in mind here is suffering that comes at the hands of others. Do you see that? Suffering insult? suffering as a criminal, suffering shame. These are judgments that come from others and are placed upon us. We will suffer hatred and persecution, but we have here two kinds of suffering. One justified and one unjustified. One suffering is for the wrong reasons, 
and one is suffering for the right reason. One is suffering because of our own sin, and one is suffering for righteousness. So let's look first at the, the wrong or justified kind of suffering. We see that in verse 15. Peter provides here a list of reasons why we might suffer for the wrong reason, our sin. The first two here should be pretty obvious. A Christian should not suffer for being a murderer because a Christian should not murder. If you do, you should suffer the consequences without complaint. A Christian should not suffer for being a thief because a Christian should not steal. If you do, you should suffer the consequences without issue. Then he says evildoer. And I think what's happening there is that evildoer is to be a, a catch-all term for all manner of crimes and sins. And so a Christian should not suffer for being an evildoer, for being a criminal, because a Christian should not do things that are evil, nor should they commit crimes. It's all pretty obvious, right? The last one is being a meddler. And that one kind of seems out of place. And what this is, is this is someone who uh, looks over, someone who intrudes on and tries to manage things that belong to someone else without invitation. It's being a busybody. And there's a certain kind of arrogance that lies behind this, I think. Attempting to live someone's life uh, for them or trying to, to force someone to live in a certain way. Uh, this would be the opposite to how Christians are commanded to live. In, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, uh, Apostle Paul says that we are to aspire to live quietly, to mind our own affairs, and to work with our hands so that we may, we may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Do not be a, a troublemaker. Do not stir up strife. Attend to your own life and business. And this comes from the conviction, ultimately, that all men are responsible before God for their own lives and their own moral choices. That's not to say that we are indifferent toward the evil that others do or the evil that's in their lives, but we should not try to change their living apart from regeneration. What people need is not us to tell them how to fix their life. They need the message of the gospel. They need the indwelling spirit. And then those things will begin to work themselves out as we disciple them, as we teach them to obey all that Christ has commanded. So a Christian should not suffer for being a meddler because a Christian should not try to manage things that belong to someone else. To suffer in any of these ways is appropriate and, and is not the kind of Christian suffering that Peter is meaning to explain. The society and, and people will rightly condemn you for doing these kinds of things, and the shame that you bear would be right and fair. And the point is simple. Do not suffer for doing wrong things. We are capable of bringing suffering upon our own heads for the wrong reasons and then asking God why he's doing this to us. This should not be so. Instead, we, we are to suffer for doing what is right. And that's what we see in verses 14 and 16. 
And if you glance at those, you'll see that we, we suffer for the name of Christ in verse 14. And then in verse 16, as a Christian, and we glorify God in that name. These are three ways to say the same thing. And if you jump ahead to verse 19, you'll see the mention at the end there of doing good. So in other words, the, the right kind of suffering is the suffering of Christ, which is suffering for doing what is good for the glory of God. And of course, this is not punitive suffering from the judgment of God. Rather, it is the wrongful judgment of men who hate God. But in a confounding and ironic twist, insult is not the curse that they intended it to be. Rather, we're told it is a blessing. It's kind of interesting. The insult that we receive is really a blessing that we receive. And the shame mentioned in verse 16 is actually glory. How? Well, this is what we've already addressed. That suffering for Christ shows God's approval. It proves that we are his. And what could be more of a blessing than knowing that you belong to God? And this blessing is not some generic blessing. In verse 14, Peter writes, You are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. This blessing is the presence of God in your life that comes by the Holy Spirit. And there is no more blessed place to be than in the presence of the Almighty God. That's what this refers to. We might think of the, the Shekinah glory in the Old Testament tabernacle. The glory was there because God was present there. And now God is present in us. He dwells in us, Peter says. And this is a great comfort when facing persecution. Our God is present with us, and our God will empower us to endure even to death. We might consider the stoning of Stephen in Acts chapter 6 and 7. We might consider the sufferings that Paul speaks of in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. The Lord strengthened them to endure. Do you realize that? That God's Spirit is with you when you experience persecution, strengthening you to endure. You've probably wondered in your Christian life if the time came when you would face extreme persecution threatening your very life, would I stand firm? Well, take courage knowing that God will be there with you to help you stand firm to the very end. Your eyes will be glued to the Lord and your heart melted in his presence and his promises will be your strength. This the Spirit of God will do. You'll be like the psalmist in Psalm 119 who says, Princes have persecuted me without cause, but my heart fears only your word. I rejoice over your promise like one who finds vast treasure. Fear not the one who can kill the body and afterward do nothing. Rather, fear the one who can kill the body and afterward cast you into hell. Those are the words of our Lord Jesus. There is nothing to fear in men, though our flesh might be inclined to. And what is it that we fear about men? Certainly there is the fear of death that comes by persecution. 
but it is also temporal judgments that we fear. You see that? Insults, shame, Peter speaks of. Do you know how the name Christian came about? It was not the Christians who went around saying, we're Christians. It was those who hated the Christians who called them Christians in order to shame them, in order to bring reproach upon them. It was meant as a public embarrassment. And this was perhaps to simply be mean and to express their hatred, but, but I suspect that it was meant to convince them to recant, to get back in line with civilized society. And that should be a little bit familiar to us, shouldn't it? Look again at the list of sins in verse 15. Murderer, thief, evildoer, meddler. These things that Christians were to avoid may in fact be the very things that they are accused of anyway. And history actually proves this. The Christian practice of the Lord's Supper was cause for wrongful accusation against Christians. Christians were eating flesh and drinking blood and they were accused of being cannibals, of eating babies and Gentiles. It's perhaps why they could be called murderers. Because of the Christians' talk of love, and because even husbands and wives refer to one another as brothers and sisters, they were accused of incest. Even the Lord's Supper, they called love feasts. Well, they called us people who did uh, orgies, all sorts of sexual deviancies. And these Christians to whom Peter writes may have been called thieves because those in need had their needs met financially, rapidly, quickly. Well, how else could that happen but by stealing? Perhaps they were called meddlers because the Christians said that what the world was doing, what people were doing in the society was wrong, that it was sin, that it was evil. Perhaps they were called criminals or evildoers because they refused to honor Caesar as Lord. They were disturbers of the peace. They were anarchists. They hated civilized society. From the very beginning, Christian belief and practice has chafed the larger culture. And the goodness alone of a Christian can be an offense to a wicked world. And when you add to that the proclamation of the name of Christ, the offense is even greater. Should it be any different today when we say things like marriage is the union of one man and one woman for a lifetime? That abortion is the murder of a child. The central ethic regarding sex is not consent, but covenant. Men and women are meant to complement one another and are not interchangeable. A man cannot become a woman and neither can a woman become a man. What is the response of the world to these things? Friends, we must know that persecution does not always come for explicitly religious reasons. Some people do not care that you say that Jesus is Lord. But 
because Jesus is Lord. We believe his word. We practice his ethics. And this is why the world will hate you. Cannibals, incestuous, bigots, transphobic, fundamentalists, sexists, racist disturbers of the peace. It's the same story now as it was then. And Peter himself speaks to this earlier in this chapter. Uh, I don't think I put it on the screen, so if you have a Bible in front of you, you can look back at verses 3 through 5 in chapter 4. It says, For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. Just because your non-Christian friends are surprised that you no longer do the things you used to do with them does not mean that you should be surprised at how they respond. And we are told that by and large, they're going to respond maliciously. It may not come all at once. It may not come in full force, but perhaps gradually and in small ways. Godly lives lived in an ungodly world confront that world and we become an unwelcome conscience. I can remember a time in my life when this became real for the first time. This was my freshman year of college on break and uh, me and my high school buddies got together at my parents' house in the, in the basement. We didn't do anything wrong. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, and so, my senior year of high school and in my freshman year of college is when I really began to take my discipleship with the Lord seriously. It's when I really began to grow and have a hunger for the Word and seek to know the Word and to live by the Word. When I had come back and realized that that was not the same for all of my friends, it had become very clear as we were hanging out that there's a rift. There's a difference now between us. The, the crude jokes weren't as funny. The, the sexual stories, not as interesting. And there was a, a point in the evening when everybody, except for my friend Rob, physically left us to go into another room and shut the door and hang out with them instead of us. And what they were doing were telling stories of the same kinds of things that we had no interest in. And uh, they were, you know, playfully, maybe as guys do, mocking and making fun of us for our religiosity. Now, this is a small thing, to be sure. This is not the same degree of suffering as people being burned at the stake. But it did point out the reality that being a Christian is going to mean alienation. It's going to mean that, and that will hurt people that you've been with your entire life. Many of these men I've known since I was a child, and their relationship changed. And they, they separated themselves 
not because I was telling them to submit to Christ, but because I was submitted to Christ. Sometimes that's all it takes. And I wonder if you have experienced something like this. Have you ever suffered for being a Christian? You might be tempted to say no, because there are those who have died for the name of Christ. But remember that Peter says that receiving insult is a form of suffering. I wonder if the way that you live demonstrates your loyalty to Christ, such that were mass persecutions to come, you would be persecuted. Maybe you have roommates or family members who believe themselves to be Christians, although maybe their life and doctrine makes you doubt that, and they ridicule you for your commitment to Jesus, for living the way that he commands, for doing things even when it makes your life difficult. Why do it? Maybe they think that you are just archaic in your thinking or that you're just a judgmental Christian. Maybe you are becoming a black sheep, a pariah to be pitied. But it has become increasingly less socially advantageous to be identified with Christ. And this has certainly been true throughout the passing decades of the 20th century. But in the last 10 years, boy, has things picked up. There's been a real noticeable change in pace for this reality. You know, maybe we were slowly traveling down the scenic route to all sorts of evil, and then maybe we started getting on some major roads and picked up the speed. Now the bus is on fire, and it's going down the highway at 100 miles an hour. And your commitment to Christ might leave you labeled as a fundamentalist. Mothers, you might be called archaic or even a sellout, if you give up your career to stay home and nurture your children. Parents, your kids might call you old-fashioned. You might sit alone in your dorm room at night while everyone else is out partying. You might get overlooked for a promotion because your values don't align with the organization's values. You might be denied serving in public office because of your hateful religion. Those of the world will want to shame you into leaving Christ. And to accept shame from them is to adopt what they say as true. But those around you who present themselves as the final authority on morality and how to live are wrong. They are not the final authority. They are not the judge but you will be tempted to treat them as such. If you are someone who, who can't stand to disappoint others, you're going to struggle as a Christian because this is only going to get harder. The temptation to avoid what non-Christians say is shameful will become too much to bear. As time goes on and our world becomes more evil, it will become more difficult to follow both Christ and those around you. 
And this is nowhere more clear in our society than on issues such as LGBTQ and abortion. Now the question is, are you ashamed of following Christ? Is the list of things that you think you would gain by deserting Christ growing? That list is only going to keep on growing. What will standing for the name of Jesus cost you? You might be willing to suffer embarrassment or or friends distancing themselves from you. But what about losing your job? What about alienation from your family? What about the anguish of divorce? Maybe eviction from your home? The loss of your creature comforts? Your freedom? Your life? Friends, the price is only going to increase. And yes, I do sincerely mean your freedom and your life, imprisonment and death. Not today. The time will come. And it would not be the first time in the English-speaking world that Christians suffered in this way. Two of those stories, English-speaking world that I read from at the beginning, Our Baptist forefathers, as well as many other Protestants, suffered imprisonment and death, even death by fire, for doing nothing but preaching the gospel of salvation by grace alone and through faith alone in Christ alone. And if public shame does not do the trick, imprisonment might. And if you're still clinging to Jesus, death will certainly do the trick. We must be prepared for this reality. It is inevitable. It will come. We must train and equip the next generation for this reality. Because it's only going to get harder for them than it is for those of us who are old, even though I'm not that old, but still. Teenagers and kids are growing up in a world where more and more people are going to expect you to, to do away with Christianity, to live like them. And they will do this by appealing to emotions. But will you stand firm knowing that these kinds of things are promised from God? Will you, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who who do not bow down and worship the image of Nebuchadnezzar as God, will you have the confidence in God that they had? Will you believe that your life And your death are entirely in the hands of your God who loves you. These are the questions that we all should consider. So if we're going to suffer well, then we must know what we will suffer. We will suffer at the hands of others. We will be persecuted. We will be told to be ashamed of Christ. But will we, like the apostles, who suffered beatings for speaking the name of Jesus, will we rejoice that we are counted worthy to suffer dishonor for his name? It's a high calling. So if you know that that you will suffer and you know what you will suffer, what must you do? Well, the natural conclusion to this 
You must entrust yourself to God. Verse 17, 18. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous are scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Now that might sound a little strange at first shake. Judgment in a household of God. Aren't we forgiven already? How can we be judged if we are in Christ? Well, this judgment is an allusion to Malachi chapter 3, where the Lord purifies his people through suffering. And this time of judgment is a sign that the end is near. Peter said in verse 7 of this chapter, the end of all things is at hand, which means it is time to clean up the household of God. But he's not speaking of condemnation when he says judgment. He's speaking of what we saw in verse 12. It's testing, it's purifying, it's purging. God does this because he loves his church and he wants to purify her. Believers pass through the testing fire of God's judgment not because he hates us, but because he loves us and hates our sin. Isn't that remarkable? God loves us so much that he would become a man and suffer himself and die for us that we would have eternal life. And God hates sin so much that he's going to purge it from us even though it's uncomfortable, even though it hurts, even though we do not like it because he wants us to be like him. So take heart in suffering like this. God is intending to make you more lovely, more useful to the kingdom, more like Jesus. Better it is to suffer temporally in this life than to suffer eternally in hell. And that's the point that Peter makes by mentioning those who do not obey the gospel, the ungodly and the sinner. If we suffer, surely those who do not obey God will also suffer. What kind of suffering will they endure if we have to endure this kind of suffering? Far greater suffering. That's the answer to that question. They, we're told in Revelation, will be cast into the lake of fire, tormented day and night, forever and ever. And that word, scarcely, that's used in the quotation from Proverbs 11, in in verse 18, does not mean just barely receiving salvation. We're not just barely making it in. It means that the righteous are saved in the midst of their suffering. Their salvation is not easy or simple, but it is difficult. It brings suffering and persecution. If the righteous are saved through great suffering and pain, what will come of those who are ungodly? And Our suffering should be a reminder of the greater judgment that could be for us were it not for Christ. And it should Remind us of the greater judgment that awaits all who do not obey the gospel of God. See, it is not the righteous who are truly the ones under threat. It is the unrighteous. Those who insult Christ. Those who disobey the gospel. Those are the ones who are actually under threat. We are not the ones to be pitied. They are the ones to be pitied. They're also the ones to be prayed for. 
the ones to be preached to, the ones that we're called to reach. So non-Christian friend, if you are here, very glad that you're here with us. But know that the fire that purifies God's church will consume you in judgment. This is a fire that consumes sin and apart from forgiveness that is found in Jesus Christ alone, it will also consume sinners. See, all of us must live our lives with the end in view. We all have what theologians call an eschatology, a belief about how things are going to end. And we all operate in the present according to how we believe things are going to end. That is why Christians are able to endure with joy our suffering and persecution. We know that glory awaits. But friend, if you're not a Christian, hear me. How you think things are going to end, it's not going to happen that way. The way you believe things are going to end, you're wrong. This is why the gospel is so important. Do you see that phrase in verse 17? Obey the gospel of God. What this is referring to is the only appropriate response to the message that the sinless Jesus died for sinners. Repent and believe. Turn from your former ways of living and, and thinking and embrace Jesus, his forgiveness, his lordship, his way of living. Entrust your soul to him in the same way that we have entrusted our souls to him. That's what we're told to do in verse 19. It says, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Again, Peter mentions suffering according to God's will, which we should understand in part to reference suffering for the right reasons and not the wrong reasons in verse 15. But it also means that God has providence. Our suffering comes from the providence of God and is sent to test the genuineness of our faith. And this should be a great comfort to you in your suffering and persecution. Never forget the Lord's providence in your life. And because of it, we depend on him in the midst of the affliction and we depend on him for the outcome. God is faithful and he will not abandon us. He will not allow us to be tempted beyond our ability to bear. So, we entrust our souls to God as to a bank vault sealed up for safekeeping. For our God is our creator, the one to whom our entire lives are committed. He knows best our needs and why we must go through hard things. And he is not only a creator, but we're told that he is a faithful creator. That means that not only does he know our needs, but he meets those needs because of his love for us. And as we saw in verse 14, he supplies us with the spirit to strengthen us to endure. We demonstrate our trust in God, Peter says, by doing the good works that he has for us, even while we suffer. We might be tempted to give up on sort of our normal Christian practices when things are hard. But the Apostle Peter here is telling us that 
We remain steadfast in those things because it demonstrates that we trust God. This is life as expected. This is nothing out of the ordinary. We continue to do what is right, whether in times of peace or times of great suffering and persecution. We are unshaken and unbroken because our God is faithful to the end. And because he is faithful to the end, he will make you faithful to the end. And there is no one better to entrust your soul. This is how we suffer well as God's people. This is the pattern we must all know and live in. When suffering comes, do not be surprised. Because like your Lord, you will suffer. But do not suffer because of your sin. Suffer because of Christ. Do not be ashamed of him when suffering comes, though you may be tempted. Rather, rejoice to suffer with Christ, for it shows that you belong to him. Suffer gladly for his name's sake and proclaim it. You will be persecuted. You will be hated. You will suffer loss. The price for following Jesus is high and will only continue to increase. Be willing to suffer greatly. Die if you must. The church has been, presently is, and will continue to be tested through suffering until our Lord returns. It will expose those who do not truly know him, and it will purify and strengthen those who do. Therefore, entrust yourself to the God who created you and loves you, always doing the good works that he prepared for you from the foundation of the earth. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for the treasure that is your living and abiding word. That it reveals to us the great truths that we need to know in order that we might delight in you and live according to your wisdom, according to your commands. We confess that to face suffering, to face persecution is intimidating for us. We beg, Father, that you would help us by your Spirit to be able to stand in the midst of these fiery trials not wincing, not seeking to escape, but wholly and entirely trusting in you, in your faithfulness, in your goodness, in your providence, that we would come through purified. Help us to suffer well, not only as individuals, but as a church. Help us to be a people who share our burdens and our sufferings with one another, that we might together Encourage and glorify you as we see you faithfully working in the midst of our sufferings. Help us, Father, we pray. In the name of our Lord Jesus, amen. For more information about Citizens Church, please go to citizensannapolis.com.